The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Let's take our Bibles uh, this morning, please, and turn to Deuteronomy 30. All right, I'm waiting for you all to find that segment of Scripture. Deuteronomy 30. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven and from there the Lord your God will call you or sorry, will gather you and from there He will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord to do all His commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as He rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which are written in this book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the Word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Notice, if you would please, as I just comment for one second, that Moses is saying, look, the words are right here for you. They're not hidden. They're not far off. They're not hard to get. It's right here in front of you. No excuses. Just follow what God has said. Verse 16, In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear, and you are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, 
and that you may cling to Him. For He is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. It doesn't get any plainer than that, does it? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please, in our Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I was just thinking one of the values of setting aside time like this where we gather and worship, God is so so wise to instruct us to do that, is that we, we get away from the other things in our lives and we focus. We do indeed take time to be holy. Uh, one of the difficulties of, of, of doing that when you're not able to gather but you're online and it's, you know, it's okay, but you may have distractions in your home that draw you away from worshiping with a full focus upon the Lord. I sometimes have that in my own circumstance because I, I maintain both an office here at the church as well as an office at the house. And I spend many a late hour and early hour in that office at my home. But there can be distractions that come to me there. And I have to say I'm leaving and going to the church office. And uh, then other distractions find me here. (laughs) But um, we have to do what we can to take time in our prayer closet, take time to be holy, take time in the Word. And uh, this is one very important way that we do that because I know you will admit that uh, if you don't come, you're probably not as likely to sit and study your Bible for another 45 minutes between 11.20 and 12.10 on a Sunday morning. Uh, so we want to do that. We want to give our attention to God's Word this morning. The title of our message this morning is very simple. It is uh, the command of the words of the Apostle Paul in chapter 10 and verse number 14 where he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. That's our title. And the truth that I've drawn out of this this morning for you, I'm just going to tell you what it is up front. And so once I tell you these things, don't just check out and say, okay, I've got it. I want you to think about these things. The truth is that God demands and deserves wholehearted loyalty from His people. God demands and deserves wholehearted, not half-hearted, not half-measured, not half-baked loyalty from His people. We're going to see that in this passage. We're going to see why that is the case. And although I, in my study, didn't imagine I have a church full of people that secretly go out and worship at idol temples throughout the week, Certainly not. The Apostle Paul had that though. I mean, that was not just an imagination for the Apostle Paul. That was a reality of some in the church in Corinth. And they wrote to him about it and said, what do we do about this matter? There's meat offered and sacrifice to idols. There's events happening at idol temples all over the place in Corinth. If you look at the layout, a map of the, of the city as it was, a very godless place with all kinds of idolatrous temples there. And that was just baked into their social fabric. And so the Apostle Paul really had this problem. And so you might think, well, we leave this in, in uh, 
Corinth and uh, maybe chap, you know, earlier in chapter 10 we talked about Israel. It seems so far away. It doesn't seem so relevant to us. But I am 1,000% sure that you and I and those people about us, even in this community in Ann Arbor, suffer from the same kinds of problems that the people in Corinth did. Oh, not because we have you know little gold or stone or wood statues that we go down and bow before, but we have our idols, don't we? Paul says that we're to flee idolatry, and that applies to us just as well as it did to the people in the first century church in Corinth and everywhere else. He says to us to think carefully about what the Bible teaches about fellowship, about communion as it's called, which is the reason that you must flee from idolatry. We're going to see that as he develops his thought. Do you understand that the connection that a Christian has with Christ is displayed at the Lord's table? Do you understand how the ancient Israelites displayed their connection, their fellowship with God at the altar? And do you then also understand that in doing things at the idol temple, you're showing a level of fellowship with the idol? And even worse than that, what exactly is the idol? What exactly is the idol? The Corinthians had a certain idea about this, and let me try to develop that. Maybe, let me, let me put, well, let me pretend that I'm in your shoes. Or I'm reading this passage, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, with your eyes and your mind. And maybe you imagine yourself in the shoes of a person who lives in Corinth. And you have read chapter 8, and you agree with Paul that, you know, knowledge does puff up. Verses 1 to 3 in chapter 8. And and yet, at the same time, an idol is nothing in the world because we know there's only one God. We're all good so far. And yeah, there are people who don't get that. There are people whose consciences have been defiled by idolatry and they don't understand that idols are nothing. And yeah, we should be careful not to offend those people. You know, if they see us eating in the idol temple, that could cause them to stumble into. Uh, their former lifestyle, and we would not want to sin against them or against Christ. So, consequently, you putting yourself in the shoes of these people, you plan to quietly participate at events similar to that in our own day and age. Not while other believers are watching, of course. You feel, however, that it's unimportant if non-Christians see you participate in these kinds of things because their consciences aren't bothered by any of that. But you, you know, you want to keep your foot in the door with your former friends in terms of social interaction. You want to, you know, eat good meat too, by the way, because they had good good barbecues at these uh, idol temples. They cooked all the meat up nicely. You gladly acknowledge that a believer has certain liberties and certain rights as Paul uh, elucidates in chapter 9, but you're not so sure about giving up those liberties and about giving up those rights because it seems, you know, I, you should be able to hang on to those and not compromise too much or at all. Besides, what would it buy you to give up eating idle meat or give up meeting in the temple with these other people who were there? 
It doesn't seem like a huge foul to participate, at least occasionally. You know, you feel you have a measure of self-control, so there's no trouble. But what I'm going to suggest in this message and what Paul is going to tell the Corinthians is that if you are thinking that way, your thinking is incomplete and you have soft-pedaled what the Bible really is saying in this passage, if you leave off verse 14 and the following verses and you just think, well, look, there's no other God, so idols don't matter, I can eat the meat, I can go to the temple, I can do the worldly things that the world does and it won't affect me. You are rescued from that wrong view when you start reading chapter 10. Because in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul gives us a clue that what he's talking about is very serious. The people of Israel that are our examples... Uh, did not just get a slap on the wrist or told, oh, it's okay, you can compromise with those idols. Not at all. You, you see that they had all kinds of evil things that they did and, and then you begin to get a, an uneasy feeling because verses 6 and 11 don't let you just rest on your laurels and say, well, that was them. You know, kind of like that phrase in the one commercial years ago, that was then and this is now. Like you can divorce the two things. No, that was then and that is now. The same applies today. These things were our examples, verse 6 says, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our warning or admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And if you think about it deeply, you think with what the Lord showed here, the provision that God made for them was tremendous. I mean, they were protected from the Egyptian army. They were carried through, as it were, almost on eagles' wings through the Red Sea. They were baptized into Moses. They ate the same spiritual food. They were given manna from heaven. How do you feed hundreds of thousands and perhaps millions of people in a desert wilderness? It's amazing what God provided for them. They drank the same spiritual drink. They were provided water by God out of the rock, as it were, that's followed them. But they did not appreciate that provision, did they? They complained. They lusted after evil things. They wanted to follow idols, the golden calf incident. They got into immorality. They tested Christ. They were destroyed by the destroyer. They were judged by God. The earth swallowed some of them up alive you get the uneasy feeling that I can't really take chapter 8 and 9 too lightly because if I do, I may be putting myself into a place like where the children of Israel were. Thinking, I can get away with that. I can do you know whatever. And it'll be alright. I can live for myself and a little bit for the Lord. And I'll be fine. The kind of judgment that God poured out upon Israel is not indicative that this is a lightweight matter. And so... We come around then to, well, remember last week we spent most of the the day on verses 12 and 13 about temptation. There are temptations that come to you that are common to humanity, but God is able to help you work through those. He will not allow you to be tested above your ability to handle, which 
it's not just your ability as, as, as if we're talking about, okay, you and your flesh have to face this temptation alone. That's not the case. It's you and the Spirit of God face the temptation together and you can pass those tests. And then you read in verse 14 and Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul, what are you saying? What he's saying is that all that he said before is true. Idols are nothing and and the issues of the conscience and rights and liberties and, and all of those things. But the idols, yeah, and the idols aren't gods. I mean, there are many gods and many lords. Remember, we said that from chapter 8. People think there are many gods and many lords. But what Paul's going to say in the end of this section, yeah, they're not gods, these idols. You know what they are? They're demons. And far be it from us to be involved with them. So, you may ask, is it... Not a harmless thing to get close to those idols, even the, even eat in the idol temple like the rest of the people did? That's right. It is not harmless. Paul is saying it's not okay to lightly esteem God's words here in the passage that we have been reading for the last few weeks together. God's admonitions are severe. They're strong. It's not okay to have a close connection with idols, even though there is only one God. Eating at the temple was an act of fellowship with idol worshipers and the idol itself, which turns out is a bit more than a nothing. We're commanded to run away from these practices. So that's the command. Flee from idolatry like Joseph fleed from Potiphar's wife. Fled, sorry, from Potiphar's wife. But there are... There's a very good reason why you have to do this. If, if, if the command is not enough, to convince you, which in fact it should be. God doesn't have to give you any reason at all. You're not owed a reason why God has told you to do certain things. But God graciously gives them often in the Scriptures. And He gives you three reasons why, or three examples if you will, why you must flee idolatry. And it has to do with the matter of fellowship. The matter of fellowship. Verses 15 through 20. There's a kind, in each of the three examples, there's a kind of fellowship that is had with uh, something, with the thing that he's speaking about. And what we have to do is investigate the examples, but also think of the meaning of that word fellowship. The word fellowship comes from the Greek word koinonia, comes from the word we use communion. Uh, it means a sharing or a partnership. We can say, do you have fellowship are you in fellowship with the Lord? And the way I use that term, that means, are you saved? Do you share common life with Christ? Sometimes people use the phrase, are you in fellowship, meaning are you, are you and God on good terms? You know, Are you sharing in the, your walk with the Lord joy and harmony right now? You might say, uh, do we have fellowship with that mission? You know, do we have a connection with that mission? Do we have a, a partnership with that mission? Do we have, do we share, uh, and participate in, in fellowship with a certain missionary? Do we send them financial support, for example? So, the idea of fellowship is one of partnership. If you say, for instance, I don't want any part of that, 
what that means is I don't want any fellowship with that thing. I don't want a share of that thing. Or somebody might, you've heard this question, did you take part? Did you take part in that? Same kind of thing. Part, participation, partnership. Did you share in fellowship with whatever that thing is in question? Now, Paul, look at verse 15. He's going to talk about fellowship, but he asks us to think. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Think about what I'm going to tell you. Form a sound judgment about what is being said in this portion of Scripture. And here are the three examples. Verse 16 talks about the Lord's table and 17. Verse 18 talks about Israel. And then, uh, oh, verse 19, you're getting into a, a, a transition there where he begins then to talk about the idol fellowship. So you have the Lord's table fellowship, you have Israel's fellowship at the altar, and you have the idol fellowship. Let's look at each one in turn. First of all, the Lord's table. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. The cup of blessing and the bread refers to the elements of the Lord's table. Now in the Jewish tradition, with regard to the Passover Seder or Passover meal, the third cup of that meal after the supper was called either the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. And Jesus took what was the third cup of that Passover Seder, which would have been the the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. He gave thanks for that. And then He said that this is the new covenant in His blood which is poured out for the remission of sins. So He kind of redefined that third cup of the Passover meal. When we partake of that cup and of the bread, too, of course we do the bread and then the cup second, in that order as the text does in the Gospels and 1 Corinthians. When we partake of that cup, we show that we are participants, partners, fellowshipping in, taking part in the body and the blood of Christ. Let me be clear. By taking part in the ordinance... We show that we confess to share a part of the salvation that those elements symbolize in their provision. Note that by taking part in the ritual of the Lord's table, we do not obtain a share in salvation. Rather, we symbolize our share in salvation already. With me? Make sense? Okay. That's the idea. Now, this is why it's important for us as a church family to participate in the Lord's table. Uh, The Lord commanded us two ordinances, two rituals, if you will. One, baptism. The second, the Lord's table. And by participating together, you are showing your partnership. If you 
refuse to participate, if you don't regularly participate, then what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm not participating. I'm not, I'm not with that church. I'm not partaking of the... I'm not showing that I have partaken of the benefits of the body and blood of Christ. That's why it's very important that we participate at the Lord's table. It's not a nothing. It is a demonstration of our partnership, our fellowship, not only together, but with Christ. That's the, that's the key thing. Some churches are pretty stringent about that. Like if you miss, say, several Lord's table services, like they have it once a month, if you miss two or three or four, uh, you, you get on the church discipline list in, in the membership role and maybe taken right out of membership. Why? I mean, look, look, can I just put it in the vernacular? You're blowing off an ordinance? That's not cool. That is not cool. It's important to show what you believe and to make a statement that you still believe it. And you're participating with the Lord Jesus Christ in that way. So, the big idea in verse 17 is this one and many uh, concept. We are many members in the church, but we participate or fellowship with one Christ. In that manner, we share together. What we're saying is, look, I'm planting a flag in the ground. That's where I am. I am with Christ's people. I am with Christ. Many gathered around that flag, as it were, and are one in Him. All of us in Christ share a solidarity together, a union together. By the way, I could kind of extend this theologically into your very participation in the church. God has ordained a body to be the center focus of His attention in this age, in His work. And local assemblies are representatives of that body. And He commands us to gather together as a church, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner, as the habit of some people is. What He's saying, again in the vernacular, is don't blow off church. Don't ignore church. Find a good church. Be a part of a good church. You need it. And it needs you. And God wants you to participate. Thus, He commands us to do so. It's a way we show our love for one another. It's a way we exercise the one another commands. I mean, how can you exercise the one another commands if there are no another's in your life? You know, if there's one in your life but no another, yeah, you have to you have to be together and have a body to do that. So that's verse 17. The many connected to the one and partaking, showing a fellowship, a sharing together. So, if you participate at the Lord's table, you're saying, I'm with Christ, I belong to Him. I share a part, you know, I have a share in Him. What about the Israelite sacrificial system? Look at verse 18. Paul says, observe Israel after the flesh. Okay, he's actually, when he says observe, he's saying, go back to verse 15, judge for yourselves what I say. Think, 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 think. Observe the Israelite sacrificial system had the same kind of fellowship in it. I mean, you would take an animal to Jerusalem, you'd kill the animal, slit its throat, 
it would bleed out your ham. Before that you did that, often you would place your hand on the head of that sacrificial animal, symbolizing the transference of your guilt to that animal. That animal died not because of its own sin. It didn't have any. It died because of your sin. And then it was cooked, grilled, you know, burnt on the altar, some, and according to all the specific instructions, some of it was burnt up, some of it was eaten, uh, with, some of it was eaten by the priest, some of it was eaten by the worshiper. All the, we don't get into all the details of that, but the idea is that those who ate of those sacrifices were partners with all that the altar represented, including God and, and the, 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 the nature of sin and the issue of, of forgiveness, at least temporal forgiveness in, in light of the, the brokenness of the law that they had executed in their sin. They were saying we're co-worshippers with God and the priests and with one another. Notice that in this case, as well as the prior case, food is involved. Food is involved. Food and drink. Fellowship is often an issue of table fellowship, isn't it? What do you do when you have a celebration at Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, special events in life? You invite family and friends over and have a meal. No? Sleep in. <laughs> you have a meal together. Often, very often do that. That's fellowship in a way. That's sharing together as a family. We're seeing a pattern here. Food in both cases. Uh, you know, the, the same kind of thing was at issue in Acts chapter 10 with Peter going to the Gentiles. Food, that was all about, there was a whole big chunk of that that was about food. God said to Peter, look, rise Peter, kill and eat. Three times this vision came to him. What is it, what God's saying to him? Not only can you eat of this particular kind of food that you used to think was unclean because it was declared so by the law of Moses, but also the people who eat that food are not to be considered unclean by their eating of it. And so, you go to the Gentiles now and you preach the Gospel to them. They are not to be considered unclean anymore. You get that out of your little brain, Peter, and you go minister Christ to them. Because, as Peter learned later, so God gave them the same gift that He gave to us, the gift of the Holy Spirit upon their reception of the Gospel and belief in Christ. Just the exact same way that God saved the, Gentile, or the Jews, He saved the Gentiles. Food was at issue there. Now, the third, the third of these examples is Gentile idol worship. Look at verse 19. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or that what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... Well, here it is, Corinthians. Buckle your seatbelt. Sit down first. The things that they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Yes, they're not gods. They're not lords. They're devils. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. We have to recognize that, well, yeah, and there's a real sense in which the idol is nothing. It's not a god. But in another and real sense, there is a serious problem. The things that they're sacrificing, they're sacrificing to demons. 
they certainly are not offering those things to God because God today does not accept any animal sacrifice anymore. Right? You with me? One final sacrifice has been made. Now, I'm leaving room for a civil use of animal sacrifices in the Millennial Kingdom, but that's a whole other matter. There is no sacrifice that can give you uh, an in with God today at all. He does not accept animal sacrifices as a propitiation or appeasement, whether temporary or eternal, for whatever kind of infraction it might be, civil, temporal, uh, in your eternal relationship with God, or anything like that. Any religious significance or any power that an idol has is all derived from a demon. It may be a nothing, or it may well be, in all in these cases, it was demonically enforced, demonically empowered rather, and demonically uh, just everything about it. And so, by participating in a meal with, at the altar, at the temple of that of that god, that demon, what are you saying? You're planting another flag in the ground, and you're saying, "I am with this." One, I am with these people. I am one of these people who worship, who participate at the table of this demon, of this idol. And Paul is saying, and we should be saying as well, is this even remotely acceptable for a Christian person to do? Now, maybe you're thinking of examples in our our life today, our modern era, that are similar to this. Keep thinking about those. I encourage that. Because Paul said, judge for yourselves what I say and observe and think about what we're talking about. Compromise with the ways of the world is no way for a Christian to live. As we said, God demands and deserves our utmost total loyalty. This is an issue of allegiance here, my friends. Not just an issue of idol sacrifice or idol meat. It's an issue of where is your allegiance? Verses 21 and 22 says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do you hear echoes here of friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's like binary. It either... You're in or you're out. It was not like all these shades of gray, you know. Verse 22, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So He gives the command, flee from idols. I'm going to give you three examples why. Okay, Because they all have to do with this issue of fellowship. This issue of partnership. And now He's going to say, you're mixing your partnerships? So make up your mind about God one way or the other. You cannot have... This This is a classic example to me. Picture with me. If you're a, a person who has ever done anything with boats, you have the dock and you have the boat. And you have one leg on this and you have one leg on this. What happens to you? Very soon, something very awkward happens. Or maybe even worse, one boat and another boat. And you're one foot in here and one foot in here. You're split, okay? It's not good. That's what's happening here. You have one foot in the demon world and one foot in the Christian world. What kind of what are you doing? The two worlds are incompatible. 
You cannot, he says, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. In other words, you can't say, I'm with this flag and I'm with this flag. I'm with these people and I'm with these people. You simply cannot serve two masters. Okay? In the example in Matthew 6.24, from which I just cited, the two masters are God and money. But it could just as well be God and a demon. God and the devil. The world or God. Whatever the two are. You cannot do both. You cannot have God as master and your flesh as master at the same time. You cannot have Christ as master and worldly wealth as master. That's why he had to deal with that rich young ruler. He said, look, sell everything you have because his God was his wealth. You must make a choice. And that choice lies before us today as well. Are you going to take Christ and disavow friendship with the world? Or are you going to work hard to gain the world and lose your own soul? Mark 8.34 says, When He had called the people to Himself with His disciples also, He said to them, Whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake and the Gospels will save it. You see, there's, there's two camps here. You can't have one foot in, in both at the same time. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And loses his own soul. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You cannot partake or fellowship in the Lord's table and worship at the table of demons. If you do, that shows that you're not fully loyal to Christ. Now, somebody might object and say, well, since I participate here, aren't I eternally secure? Aren't I safe? What they're, what they're doing is they're treating the Lord's table as a good luck charm, a rabbit's foot, a talisman that protects them from whatever other things they're doing. I can do this, but then that's going to protect me. I'll come back and confess, but I can do this other stuff over here as well in my life. Christ is telling us to make a choice here. To follow Him wholeheartedly. What if you participate in both rituals, okay, both fellowships, both partnerships, both the idol temple and the and the Lord's table, what you're doing is you're showing that you're not genuine before God. You're a fake. You're disloyal to the one who paid his life for your eternity. Now, the idol demon may not really care if he has your full loyalty. But God does. Why, does the, why would a demon not care? Well, if, if he's got part of you, that's all he needs. That's all he needs. Because he has broken your connection with God. You're not seriously walking with the Lord. You're no threat to him or his program. But you know, God is a jealous God. And you probably think, well, God jealous? That sounds bad. That sounds like, I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Well, let me ask you men, are you jealous over your wife? And you wives, are you jealous over your husband? Is that a good jealousy? God deserves our love and loyalty. Let me focus on that notion of 
love and loyalty for a moment. Then we'll get to the jealousy again. Matthew 22 says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all, 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 heart, soul, mind, strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. Psalm 86.11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Now listen. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite it together. Not some here to the world and some here to the Lord. Or most to the world and the crumbs to Jesus. Psalm 119, verse 2, Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. Not half the heart. Psalm 141.4 Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. Do not let me eat of their delicacies. James 1.8 tells us don't be double-minded. 1 Kings 18.21 How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if the world is where it's at, where your own personal pleasure is your highest desire, or you love entertainment or comfort or money or whatever else, follow that. But don't pretend to follow God if you're going to follow that. You choose which way you're going to go. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord the best way that I know how. And you should too. Now look at verse 22. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? The Apostle Paul starts throwing out Old Testament references here at a quick rate. And uh, he uses Deuteronomy 32. Let me just turn there. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 21. Listen to this. God says... The nation, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So God says, I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. So God says, I'm going to turn away from the Jews and I'm going to turn to the Gentiles, which marvelously He has done for us. Thank God for that. He's doing that for a purpose though, to provoke to jealousy the nation of Israel so that they can have a restoration as well. Israel chose idols over the true God who had provided for them. Think, the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, the manna, all of that. They chose idols over Him? What an offense. I mean, think of how you feel if your wife leaves you, your husband leaves you. Or if you're in a younger stage in life, your girlfriend or boyfriend who you thought was going to be your spouse leaves. Jealousy. Maybe sounds bad at first, but you know what? This kind of jealousy that God has is, or or the kind of jealousy that you have for your spouse is jealousy for something that rightly belongs to you. I'm not talking about jealousy for, oh, I want what that person has. No, it's that I should maintain what I have, what God has given to me, that is rightly mine. God, in this case, is the one who has created the nation of Israel 
He has redeemed them from Egypt. They rightly belong to Him. He's jealous over them. Just like, you know, He's jealous over you if you're a follower of Christ. He doesn't want you to dabble in the demonic, in the world, in the love of entertainment, pretend and money and power and immorality and all of that. He's jealous over you. And He will execute that jealousy in different ways to keep His people honest, if you will. Keep them before Him. You want to put Christ to the test? Dangerous territory. Really dangerous territory. What happened in earlier in chapter 10? They were destroyed by the destroyer. They, their, their bodies fell in the wilderness for 38 years. 40 years. And then... Paul adds this from a later portion in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 22. In Ezekiel 22, what he draws from that is this, 22.14. Can, uh, can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Let me, let me just connect those again. 1 Corinthians 10.22 Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Don't do that. And secondly, are we stronger than He? Are we stronger than He? And in Ezekiel 22.14, the prophet is saying, can you endure? Can your hand remain strong in the day that God deals with you? Are you going to say to God, yeah, I know I provoked you to jealousy, but that's my business, not your business. I mean... Before the Lord, who can stand? If God marks iniquity, who can stand before Him? Nobody. You're not stronger than God. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Idolatry today, as we conclude, might not look like it did in ancient Israel exactly, although in many parts of the world it does. In many parts of the world it does. We have kind of been lulled into... Uh, you know, a false sense of security because we grew up in a Western Judeo-Christian kind of culture, which is fast becoming not that, by the way, losing all of that influence. And so we're going to see more idolatry. We're going to see more of this kind of stuff. But elsewhere in the world that has not had the Christian influence that we have certainly has this. But in our context, idolatry doesn't have to be just out in public in an idol temple though. Ezekiel 14 talks about the idols of men's hearts. The idols that exist in our hearts. And they may be reflected in outward idols, statues, or idol temples, but they may not. You cannot have things in your heart that rank higher than God and then expect that God is going to answer your inquiries as if your relationship to Him is just fine. Any failure, however... That's what we've been talking about here is failure in this area of divided loyalty. We're supposed to have a wholehearted faith, a wholehearted approach to our God. But you know as well as I that we have failed from time to time. Any failure in this area of divided loyalty is reversible. It is reversible. God is gracious and will receive you if you turn away from those idols. What was the message that the Apostle Paul brought to the church in Thessalonica? 
And he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, when we came, you turned to God away from idols and then began to wait for His Son from heaven in whom they had newly believed. So if you turn away from your idols, whatever they are, outside, inside, you turn away from your self-centeredness, turn away from your sin, God will be merciful to you. And I don't want you to think, well, I'm I'm a Christian. that, That doesn't apply to me. I've already done that. Well, maybe you need to do it again. Maybe you need to repent again. Because believers are repenters. We're to repent of our sin consistently. We're to confess our sin constantly. That's just what we are. God is merciful toward us because His Son freely offered Himself in our place as a substitute sacrifice for sinners. He who did no sin took sin upon Himself, including the sin of our idols, the sin of our false worship, the sin of our self-centeredness, our self-autonomy, our blowing off the Lord's table, our blowing off the church. He took all those sins upon Him by substituting, by standing in our place so that we would not have to pay the penalty ourselves. If you believe in Him for salvation, Him alone, He will rescue you from your sin and give you a partnership in His family. And I just, I am thankful for that. I praise the Lord for that. I bring it to you as the resolution of this message because in any wise in which we've separated ourselves from good fellowship with God, in any way in which we've had a divided loyalty, a split allegiance, coming back to Christ is the way to get that washed and cleansed. And I commend that to you today. For the first time, perhaps, or for the nth time, if you're a believer and you recognize, you know, there's some areas in my life where I've been kind of, you know, dabbling one foot over here and one foot over here, it's going to split you if you don't be careful. You've got to get that one foot on the other side with the other one and be squarely in the camp with Jesus. That's fellowship. That's what we're talking about. Wholehearted, undivided loyalty to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that Your work will be done in us through Your Spirit. The Word has been proclaimed. The Spirit of God is able to take that Word and He's able to change our hearts with it. And I pray that He is and has been doing that even this morning. Lord, may we have a higher devotion, a more pure loyalty, less divided interests in our lives than we have had up till this point. Thank You, Lord, for this Word. Teach us to flee idolatry. Teach us what it means to have fellowship with Christ and not to split that fellowship with a bunch of different priorities. In Jesus' name, Amen.